0: This year marks the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. To commemorate the event, the Deepwater Initiative sat down with Rabbi Ellen Bernstein, a writer and teacher who's been exploring the intersection of Judaism and ecology since she founded the first national Jewish environmental organization, Shomrei Adama, in 1988. She's written five books, which includes Two Haggadot on Passover and The Jewish New Year for the Trees. I hope that this conversation Jesus provides good food for thought. Enjoy.
1: I'll build a boat like Noah for the storm And watch the desert of my life transform Crossing the river Jordan Crossing the river Jordan Crossing the real
0: Rabbi Bernstein, thank you so much for joining me here today on the Deep Water Initiative podcast. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for for sitting down with me to have a chat. Uh, how are you doing?
2: I'm good, and I'm really delighted to be here to have and have this opportunity to chat with you.
0: So, I'd like to start off by asking you some questions just about your history, how you came to this field of Judaism and ecology, and and how you came to think about the relationship between environmentalism and Judaism. In my head, I sort of have this marker, uh, at least with respect to the formation of the field of religion and ecology as it is an academic discipline, uh, really with, with the conferences on world religions and ecology that happened at Harvard in the mid 90s. But you founded Shomre Adama in the late 80s in 1988 so i'd just like to ask you a little bit about your history and how you came to find certain motivations to to move this way in your life
2: sure so so first of all i think it's important to note that i sort of came of age in the 70s in berkeley and i went to uc berkeley and i was always a kind of a spiritual seeker a seeker generally and an outdoor kid when I was young and I had the privilege of going to a boarding school in high school where uh, we were required to study religion and um, and each each semester at in, in high school we took a different we we had choices of what religions we wanted to study. We had to take, while we were in school, I think we had to take one Old Testament class and one New Testament class. But other than that, we could study anything. And there was like Confucianism and Taoism. And so I got exposed in when I was 14 or 15 years old to world religions. And that was huge for me because I was... Uh, a pretty unhappy adolescent, and I was like really seeking uh, wisdom and like how to live in the world, what to value, what mattered. so to be able that's what and that's what i I uh, found that the study of religion offered me um, was a kind of security that um or or realizing that religions that all religions were struggling with the same things that i was struggling with and a lot of it was about being human really human centered and greed and um exploitation of the earth all those things were really troubling me when and this was this was like in the late 60s and So I studied religion in high school and my high school also had, was probably one of the very first schools to have environmental studies. So when I was in high school, I was out in New Hampshire, um, tromping around with big boots and, you know, uh, water gear and hat kits. And we were doing studies on the Ashwheelot River. And every week in, in our class, environmental studies, we'd go out and do these studies of the river and uh, test the amount of dissolved oxygen and uh, and to see look at the pollutants and go and visit with the people in the factories there that were dumping the pollutants out. And it was really big for me. And I wrote this big paper. So I was... The two the two major influences for me in high school were studying religion and studying ecology. So, and that was in the, in the sixties, the late sixties. And then I went to UC Berkeley in, in environmental studies. So I was, I was incredibly blessed that these fields were emerging when I needed them. You know, I don't know what I would have done if I couldn't have, you know, studied this stuff. I, you know, I would have been a, a much more miserable person. So, um, so anyway, I started studying environmental studies at UC Berkeley, and when you get out of, in those days, the only jobs in the field of environmental studies were um, doing environmental impact statements, which were really seemed incredibly boring and had nothing to do with my interest whatsoever. Um, and because I was really spiritually oriented, I, my background in Judaism was like totally minimal and pretty negative. So, um, but I was definitely, you know, had become interested in Judaism through my interest in religion. And, um, and when I was in Berkeley, I encountered these folks that were pretty alternative and, uh, they were totally excited about Judaism. And um it was called the Aquarian Minion. Did you I don't know if you ever ran into those folks. I haven't, in, no. In the West Coast. So um and these folks were uh, kind of I don't want to say disciples, but they were in the in the line of uh, Shlomo Karlbach and then Zalman Schachter. Um and um their practice of Judaism was really joyful, and also the other, the other big thing for me was when I graduated college, I was always really intellectually hungry, and I always got a ton of pleasure from learning and talking about ideas, and so when I graduated from college, I wanted to continue that like kind of study of ecology, literature, philosophy. And I didn't know how to do that. Like there wasn't any like structure set up. And what was really cool about Judaism was that it offered this weekly conversation. It was a Torah conversation. It wasn't exactly what I was looking for, but it was along the right, along those guidelines, you know, like it's a, a conversation about ideas, you know, that really entertains different people's ideas on this story, so that's pretty much how I got interested in Judaism. Um, and, um, and then just kind of the whole thing of bringing Judaism and ecology together. I had already been doing that as a, you know, from the time I was in high school, like religion and ecology was really my, my starting point. And then once I started getting interested in, in Judaism, I started studying the portion of the week with someone that I had met and, um, and he was like uh, a PhD in literature, so he was really, literarily oriented. And I was just astonished at all the ecological stuff in the Bible, like that that we were studying. I could barely get past Genesis one, and um, and I was really excited. And for years and years, I looked for a Jewish environmental organization, basically just as a place for me to park myself, you know, a place to call home. And I couldn't find anything and there wasn't anything. So, um, so you know, I ended up moving to Philadelphia thinking I was going to pursue this other work. And uh, ultimately I, there was, I lived in a community there in, in Mount Airy, which is a section of Philadelphia that a lot of folks from the reconstructionist movement live. Plus, a lot of Zalman, Schachter's, uh, that group. Um, And so, there was a, when I was looking for Jewish environmental organizations, there was a lot of support there for me. And people would just, you know, kind of parrot back to me and say, well, there isn't one, but you need to start one, you know, and, you know, we'll help, right? So, that's basically, that's basically what, where, where it began um yeah
0: so in what context uh, did you start this organization like what what were you trying to do apart from perhaps working to create a space where like the discussion can happen what what were you trying to do
2: well i i wanted jews to care about the environment i mean that was huge for me um I couldn't understand why it seemed like so many Jews were into social justice. I mean, it's such a preeminent um, identity marker of Jews, like whether you're religious or secular, kind of everyone agreed on social justice, but it just seemed insanity to me that like, what about the environment? Like, why doesn't anybody really care about this? So, I I mean it was early in in the days of religion and environment and I and I was one of several people that were trying to influence religions generally uh, around getting engaged in 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 this field because you know it was also a whole issue of target marketing and I understood that like that different different groups needed to hear messages, um, framed differently. So, um, so yeah, that, that was a a primary thing was that I wanted to get Jews involved in the environment so that I could feel that I, again, had a place in Judaism. I wanted that conversation to happen and I wanted that actuality to happen. I wanted You know, I wanted there to be gardens, big gardens at synagogues and people growing food and giving it away and being, you know, having people super involved in different environmental issues and just really living ecological lives. Because to me, theologically, I believed that that was a central part of what, of what of who God is, basically. And I just felt like nobody was seeing that. So that's one half, but there's another half to that story, which is... Um, so there, there's a half of of kind of wanting Jews to become more environmentally conscious. And the other is the the part about Judaism to... Embrace its ecological dimensions because that's a way of reaching Jews. It's a whole way of making Judaism way more accessible for people. And uh, so I never understood why, like philanthropists, didn't jump at the opportunity like right in the beginning. And and uh, just just in terms of seeing seeing this as a strategy for them to to reach young jews um so anyway that's kind of the origin
0: <laughs> well i do you know i first of all i love the name i think for those who are listening uh shomrei Adama is hebrew for keepers of the earth uh shomer or shomrim in plural uh, would be keeper um, but i just find the choice of your name for this, like how did you come about it? Because theologically, first of all, I think it's really interesting. Uh, there's such a discussion right now going on around environmental stewardship, uh, particularly in in this field where we, everyone talks about Genesis 1, uh, 26 to 28, having dominion over the earth and sort of the whole uh, second creation narrative gets completely sort of wiped over, which is what your name is invoking, number one. Number two, uh, I at least came um, into your work through your Passover Haggadah, but you've also mm. written a, a, a Haggadah book for Tu Bishvat, uh, the new, new Year for the Trees. So I'm curious as far as what made you to start thinking about the relationship between environmentalism and jewish ritual because it's something really powerful like in that notion and it's it's why your work at least from my perspective has really got me thinking about this and it's easy now like when you put together these books i look at it and i'm like oh this is self-evident but Mm -hmm. but where you were sitting it wasn't there and this whole notion where you're talking about as far as um such an emphasis on tikkun olam but in these reform uh sometimes reconstructionist movements there's an emphasis on tikkun olam on on the social justice aspect of the religion but a lot of times the ritualist is extracted from it it's not part of there's such an emphasis on a on a moral um right uh slant to the the religion but but the ritual is not there and that's one thing that you're doing that I find to be really powerful so I just wonder if you can maybe talk to that I know that that was kind of a, a two-part question one was theological but but the I other... think
2: it's a four-part question okay,
0: okay. yeah
2: <laughs> let's let's I mean this is going to be quite a long answer but okay we'll, we'll break it down and if I don't hit everything You know, ask me, you'll ask me again. So first of all, it's interesting because. First, let me say that I love that you translated for me, Shamri Adama correctly. Keepers of the earth. Most people want it to be guardians of the earth. And for me, there's a huge difference. I mean, you know, you can translate Chomere either like keep or guard or lots of things, but those are two primary um, translations. And I love keepers, again, because the one thing that you picked up at the very end of your long statement was about that it wasn't that. Um, I was, I'm avoiding moral language. I'm totally, my work is totally avoiding moralizing, because that's what turned me off to religion to begin with as a young person, and also has turned me off around environmental stuff, was hearing a very heavy moral, you should do this kind of message. So, I'm going to go back to your first thing about Shomri Adama and talk about why I chose that. First of all, I knew very, I came into this whole work as a total newbie. I didn't know very much about anything Jewishly. I mean, I was, I just knew there was this need and I knew that I had certain skills and energy and passion and I could find other people that knew more than me to, like, write and that sort of thing. And so that was in the early days. I mean, I've become more, much, you know, literate over the decades. But you're right about Shomri Adama being from the second creation story about guarding and keeping the earth, right? Adam and Eve are in the garden and... Um, they're, they're asked to, to, uh, to, to take care of the, of the earth. And I just mostly, you know, th- that was like a low-hanging fruit, okay, for me in those days as someone that didn't know very much. Um, and I, I love the name, but it has nothing to do with, for me, the second creation story. So I want to talk about that a little bit. Um, do you want to explain to people the difference between the first and second creation stories for people who might not?
0: Sure. Um, I guess in essence, the the quick elevator speech would be there are two creation myths given in the Bible. The first is is Genesis one twenty six to twenty eight, and this is where humans are given the opportunity to go forth and multiply and they are given dominion over the earth and there's been a lot of discussion around what this word dominion means whether or not it's it's even being translated properly into the English I mean there's there's a whole world of literature out there I think on this and then there is the second creation myth which is uh, Genesis 2 7 where it talks about Adam, which is a generic we use it generally for to reference Adam, the first man, but it it is can also be used generically to talk about the first human um, being crafted from the dust of the earth. and we we hear that in the Hebrew, the relationship with between Adam and Adama. So or Adama being the Hebrew word for earth and Adam being the the Hebrew word for uh, man, so there are two—at at least when we when we look at rabbinical discussions, there are there are actually two creation narratives that are happening there. I don't know if I describe that well enough. Um, I don't know if there's anything else you want to say on it, but a lot of weight is given to that first creation narrative, and I think that's the main point uh, to to emphasize.
2: Okay, so we have different perspectives on these two stories so for me most jewish environmentalists and christian environmentalists i feel like they completely dis genesis 1 and they hold up genesis 2 and 3 as this environmental perspective and they're and just like forget genesis 1 we hate dominion dominion means it's a mandate to control nature we don't want to have anything to do with that. That's embarrassing, and what we believe is the kind of shomraya Adama that um, that humanity is here to to guard and tend the earth, right? So, for me, I feel like most most environmentalists and lots of people hate Genesis one, um, and again, blame Genesis 1 and the dominion verse for our environmental problems in the world, both Christians and Jews, both secular and religious. And um, to me, Genesis 1 is the most ecological text in the whole Bible. And I feel like people don't really read it, for a couple of reasons, number one, because they assume it's kid stuff. And actually what we didn't talk about was that what, what Genesis one actually is, is when each day of creation, a new version aspect of creation is created, right? So you have, um, the air on the second day, basically you have like light on the first day, the air on the second day, water on the earth on the third day, along with earth, and then you have the stars and the planets on the fourth day, and um, and the fish and the birds on the fifth, and humanity and animals on the sixth. And then we get Shabbat on the seventh. Um, so I, I wrote a whole book on Genesis 1, just going line by line through Genesis 1, looking at the ecological implications of each line. And so... You know, I could spend the rest of this podcast just talking about Genesis 1. I'm not going to do that. But what I want to say is that that um, folded in to that whole text is a profoundly ecological vision that understands the goodness of everything that's created, right? Each, each day, more or less, ends with the words, and it was good. And then on on the sixth day, it says, at the end of that day, it says, and it was very good. And that's referring to all the creatures in interacting with each other, not not just by themselves. And most people think um, the very goodness of the sixth day refers to humanity being created on that day. But if you look carefully at the text, it's very clear. It's about all that's already been created the word "coal" or "all" is repeated like ten times in three verses there, and that's the, what the very goodness is. And again, I, I, you know, writing a whole book on this, so there's a lot to say. But to me, dominion is completely misunderstood, and people look at it as a pressing down instead of a lifting up, and that that's our role is, and also, you know, here's something that I've been thinking about. I actually just wrote another paper on this that I'm delivering this weekend, um, that like, we could talk about the Hebrew, but I, I like staying with the English because it's the King James and, and that's what people are really familiar with. And, and dominion is the word that people hate. So, um, so most people hate it because they think of dominion in terms of domineering domination but you can also think of dominion in terms of domain domicile madam dame right so those are all words that are much more about caring for nature caring right domain and domicile is like thinking of the earth as our home and that we're here to take care of that um and um so Anyway, that's been a very important um, kind of important um, <clears throat> line of thinking for me in which I feel like I have a very different point of view than most people um, because I feel like people are just so quick to, to dismiss Genesis 1 and run to Genesis 2 and say, oh, look, we have this vision of humans and we're taking care of nature. To me, the other thing I love about Genesis 1 is that it's a totally God-centered text, and 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 to me, the whole, you know, what so much of what um, environmentalists are concerned about is anthropocentrism, right? The human-centeredness of our culture, and Genesis 1 offers us a total theocentric vision. Um, and Genesis two and three are much more human centered again. So um, anyway, there's there's a lot right there. Well, so that's I, one part of your big question. I,
0: I will say, and, and in case uh, I, I and I'm sorry if I if it didn't come across in in this way, but what I was trying to allude to is the way in which you're addressing Genesis one, that I find to be incredibly productive, like to this, discussion that's happening because I as also feel it's going uh, the wrong or I don't know quite how to say it but you know there's a lot as far as um, some scholarship like who someone who comes to mind it's Richard Bauckham and he's trying to bring this whole debate around stewardship but I love the idea of keepers Um, and and that's in essence sort of what I was trying to say Uh, Right. Is this right? So this would be the splendor of creation. The book that—that's the splendor of creation. Yeah. Okay.
2: Um. Yeah. So keepers is a big thing. Um. So let's. So. Let me say a little more, um in in response to some of the other parts of the question, that really resonated for me, which is I again, another way that I feel very different from a lot of the folks that are doing work in religion and ecology, which you picked up in a certain way, um, which, you know, you're talking about ritual and, um, and, and how so often in religion, we don't have people concerned about ritual and they're just, they're talking about social justice and there's no ritual element. So for me, it's not even so much ritual. It's art. I, I, I guess I, I, and this has taken me decades to be able to articulate. Um, I realized that, and, and I struggled with a lot of people uh, around trying to like find my voice. Cause it was the, the social justice voice is very loud and clear and very easy to art, you know, it's, it's very articulable, articulable, um, and it's moralistic. I mean, that's the, the moral voice is like, do this or don't do this, you know? And, and to me that, that doesn't work for me. That's, that, that's not going to bring me close. That's going to send me running in the other direction. Um, And for me, the texts were beautiful. And that's what I've been trying to convey. And the rituals helped me do that. But I didn't do the Passover Haggadah because it didn't, it, I was asked to do it. I don't know that I would have done it. That's a whole nother story. But I was asked, I was, it was kind of like commissioned. So, um, and it took me a long time to figure out a way into it, um, but but you picked up on the on the. So, so I myself am actually not that ritually oriented a person. I'm art oriented. I'm aesthetically oriented, um, and for some people that that um, that translates into ritual. You know. Um, and for me, it's, it's just like the beauty of ideas and the beauty of, uh, of language, you know, for me, religious language captured my feelings about nature better than most language. And that's what this was all about for me is finding a language to express myself.
0: I love, I love how you just put that, um, it, so was it the same for the the, the um... my
2: tubish work was the very first thing I did the very, very first thing I did. So it just seemed so crazy to me that we had this holiday that was about trees and it was a a, um, a minor holiday in the Jewish calendar. But it just seemed like, oh, this is really fun, you know what can we do with this? And then studying the pre Hadar, which is the original um, Kabbalistic text that is behind Tubeshvat, um, you know, that's the text that goes along with tubishvat and kind of realizing, you know, as a, when I wrote that, I was probably in my early thirties and I had never celebrated tubishvat in my, you know, in my life. I mean, it just seemed kind of, I just remembered these silly songs that we sang and it, you know, it wasn't very meaningful to me. And then reading this kabbalistic text and seeing that uh, that there was this huge focus on creation, and um, and it's full of uh, all of these creation readings. You know, most people don't know this because the tubishvat stuff that's out there is not tracing back to this the priet Sadar. It's more creative stuff that people have done for Tubishvat, you don't have to follow the particular liturgy like you do in other main holidays so people felt all this creative freedom to take the to create ritual in whatever way they wanted so um I, I try to rely on as much of the original text as I can, and I bring that out in different ways. Um, but so anyway, it, it was, that was a lot of fun for me. And um, I guess what I, what I want to say about it is it wasn't like I was necessarily running after doing ritual work. I'm not really a ritualist kind of a person and I'm not all that comfortable leading things, but what I do love to do is the kind of scholarly slash artistic work of weaving together the text and the art. And that's, and so that's what Tubishvat was for me. Like how do I, how do I frame this ritual in a way that's really accessible and beautiful? That that that. So that's what I mean by art, I guess. Is how to make it beautiful and accessible to wide ranges of people. Um. So, yeah. So my first tubishvat seder, I had. All I was in Philadelphia in one of the boathouses, and uh, I have a video of it. I don't know if you saw it, but it's very cool. It oh, it's very cool. It was uh, covered by National Public Radio in nineteen eighty nine, and um, um, I had like I had artists create this gorgeous centerpiece. We had all these trees, like a. Um, Trees and planters inside. I had for each of the worlds, there's four worlds in, in the Kabbalistic perspective. And I had for each of the worlds uh, different musician, well-known Philadelphia musicians create original music for the Seder. It was a very powerful experience for people who came. And I think that what I – so it's like I love bringing together the art, the music, and the text. So in some ways, I, I feel like my work is more that than necessarily creating ritual. It's more like creating, creating art out of the holiday, creating like a celebratory art out of the holiday. Um, So for me also like ritual, the ritual, I'm interested in the whole theater of it, right? The theater of the ritual, the music of the ritual, the art of the ritual, the education, right? The opportunity for teaching, for conveying a message. So that it was kind of like uh, using the, the, the ritual format that exists in order to convey all these things. And it's really cool that you picked up on that because in some ways going forward in my life, one of the really big teachings for me is that that's what's most fun for me is being able to weave these very different strands together. That's what's most rewarding and fun. And I like to collaborate with other people and, um, as opposed to just doing straight text work.
0: Well, when you say something like that religious language invoked in you, a connection with nature. I'm wondering and and everything that you described since then. I'm wondering of course like from a from a personal level like is is this have you follow that in your work like that feeling like what has driven your various projects um and how like how have you gone about crafting them and and again this is as much a personal question for me as i'm trying to look at what to do in this field right um as far as the the intuition and the motivations inside of yourself the voice that you were listening to right what, what were you following? Um, because you also have have three books. One of those is one uh, that you edited, uh, Ecology and the Jewish Spirit, um, and have some articles in there as well. Um, so I'm wondering if we can maybe build on what you were just describing here, as far as the atmosphere or, or the space that is being created and held during ritual, and, and it is unique uh, in the sense of for you as as far as how you were describing it in terms of art. But I am wondering, moving forward in, in my life and in this field, what do I need to be listening to as I'm trying to look at where to go next?
2: Um, okay, so I love, first of all, it's really great to talk to you because... Because you're asking questions that lots of people never ask. And like the questions about atmosphere and space and intuition. Those are all words that are huge for me. And I feel like I've needed to navigate that on my own because like the problem is, is that the, my experience is that the Jewish world doesn't pay for any of this. This is all work of being an artist and it's complicated you know, uh, when I ran Shomer I, 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 you know, it was a job and I was paid, but pretty much all the work I've done since then, it falls in the, I feel like it falls more in the category of independent scholarship and art. And it's, it's hard, but I also take solace in all the other, like knowing You know, to me, carving out your own path feels like the primary religious enterprise. You know, to me, that's what it means to be a religious person. And I I feel like that's not a commonly held belief at all. And I don't fit in normal categories uh, around, you know, Judaism Um, and I'm always feeling like more, um, connected to artists, you know, that are kind of weaving things together. Um, so you, you asked about intuition and I guess that to me that again, it's, it's the same thing. It's the, that's what it means to be a religious person is to get in touch with your intuition and All like when you are in rabbinical school or something like that, you know, that is not cultivated at all. It's all textual. And it's all what the rabbi said. And basically what I felt right after. First of all, like I I didn't have any Jewish background. Then I learned a lot starting in my 20s. I kind of delved in. I took classes you know I led a Jewish life went to shul every week that kind of thing and just learning Jewishly was a big part of became a big part of my life um but then there came and then I went to rabbinical school very late and like just you know I don't know 8 years ago I I graduated rabbinical school um that's a whole other story but a lot of us who went to rabbinical school, it's very hard because your your intuition intuition it's not about you. It's not about you and cultivating your intuition. It's about learning what all these Jews said, all the rabbis said over generations. And it is, you know, kind of overwhelming, like intellectually, to to get a handle on all that stuff. And there's not a lot of room for for your own experience. And like, over time, I started feeling like in the last five years, I just started feeling like it was more and more important for me to take myself seriously as a spiritual person to be more in touch with my intuition. So I've really, really been paying attention to that. Like, what do I react to? Like, just really simple things like what drives me crazy? What am I drawn to? What am I you know, repelled by, um, it just became much more of a priority for me to be, become more connected to what was deeper inside of me instead of what was just in my head. And, I think it's huge a huge thing for, for us in our culture and especially Jewish culture to, to find your way into that. And I did a like I did a coaching symposium thing. I learned to be a coach um, as a way of um getting more in touch with my intuition. I took some art classes, which I'd never done. Um okay, so then you asked something about atmosphere and space. Can you say that again?
0: Sure. Um, In essence, what's, I I mean, I think it points to what's happening during ritual um, and what is created when we're, uh, this is why I I have a, a tough time separating ritual from any type of moral development, moral and and not to bring that in because I know it's particular language, like you said, you're you're trying to avoid. But it's one of the things about um, some uh, sects of Judaism that I think um, are lacking uh, because they're missing the ritual. There's something that through it, it's the it is the language of religion in a way. I mean, it or it is a language of religion yeah. that's being used and can be made personal. Um, but yeah, so I, I had just asked you about, um, cause for you as an artist, um, feeling into that space as far as what happens during ritual. And it is one thing I will say, um, in your voice that comes out in your writing and in your scholarship, One of the things that I really love is that your voice comes through. It's academic, but you're also telling a story about yourself and your own development. So it's more for me, again, this is personal as far as how you've approached your work and been able to keep your voice and keep your development and keep um, your love for the art and the theater of all of this, um, but you've still been able to to embark on these projects. Um, so as far as what you suggest for young scholars in this field, mm. what they need to be think how, not that it's dictatorial in this sense, but like how, what advice would you give young scholars in this field? And where would you like to see this field going so that we can build upon mm the type of work you've been doing.
2: Mm, That's so nice. Okay. Hold that thought. I want to address one thing that's related because I want to address the language of atmosphere and space and about creating that because that's how I think about God. That language to me is God language. I think of God in the air, God as Ruach Elohim and So to me, like this whole idea of creating space or creating an atmosphere feels like what it means, again, to be a religiously oriented person, right? To bring this sense of God in the way that I understand God into the space, right? So, okay. So that's one thing. And then in terms of advising people, I think that, you know, this is really true for, um, you know, I think the ancient rabbis, they all had, they all had jobs, like mundane jobs or not so mundane, but they were carpenters and shoemakers and they all had the kind of grounding jobs that they did. Uh, I mean, there are lots of doctors as well. Right. Um, and then their spiritual life was what was sort of what they did when, they, when they weren't working. And I think that in many ways, that's, I think it's really important to look at a religious life that way. So you know, I didn't get a PhD. I thought about it. Um, of getting, a, I could have gotten like a PhD in, in Bible is probably what I would have done. But I was totally discouraged by people who were advising me because they said I would, it it would just be too constraining for me. And um, I wouldn't be able to develop in the way that I wanted to develop, like really take the kind of risks that I wanted to take. Um, so I guess, you know, one of the things as a, so for, so for example, for yourself, like my understanding is you don't have a PhD yet, right? But perhaps you think about getting a PhD?
0: It is, um, I'm actually, Playing around with going for ordination uh, is more, I think, the direction I might go rather than a PhD. Um, but I'm still, yeah, I'm in a limbo phase. <laughs> yeah.
2: So, um, I mean, the, the thing is, is being a rabbi gives you more flexibility around things like creating ritual, you know? I mean, that's, if you're asking the question as a scholar, that's it seems like that would be relatively hard unless you were a scholar of liturgy, right? And you're a scholar of liturgy and you're um you're a scholar of liturgy or a scholar of religion generally and there's that kind of leeway to do that kind of work. Um so and the thing the thing is, i just want to back up again and say that i just my feeling is that the field of religion and ecology has really been about ethics and that that's how it's primarily understood. And that's where the jobs are. Um, so like, you know, there's all these environmental ethics programs and, and that kind of thing. And, and the way I've come to define my work is, is in terms of bibl- biblical, environmental aesthetics. Um, and, Yeah. I mean, you know, it's so much of it is taking a risk and doing stuff on your own. So, and and I, I want to say that it's not, it's hard, but I feel like the more I do that and the more risks I take and the more I speak my own voice, the more opportunities I actually have. So, so what I, I guess my primary advice is to really follow what you are feeling inside. And if you want to create a ritual or that kind of thing, do it and do it really well. You know, do it really well. Put, you know, like people would think, oh, Lego, it's a Passover Haggadah. Everybody can throw one of those together. I mean, you know, it took me three years to do that. You know, for me, I'm always, I've always, I've always, Either I want to do a job really well, take it really seriously, or I don't want to do it at all. And I think actually one piece of advice or that I was given or or told about myself, like the people a way that people thought I was different, was that I was taking certain things really seriously. You know, it's kind of like, well, other people had thought, oh, yeah, you know, there's this cool eco stuff in in Judaism. But but they hadn't like really dived right in to really to really think about it. And I was like making a big deal about it. Like this is actually something. This is not just nothing. This is a this is a whole world, you know. So to me, it's it's it requires a lot of courage. And a lot of sticking by your, I hate the word guns, but you know, (laughs) sticking by like what you feel inside. Like it, to me, it's really about taking your intuition seriously, you know, and it's complicated out there. It's really hard because there's, I mean, my life has been hard around this stuff. I've struggled a lot and I don't really have a solid community of, of people to, you know, share my ideas with. You know, I have a person here and a person there that I call upon, but um, so it's, it's hard. It's hard, but it's, you know, it's rewarding and a privilege to be able to do your own work, you know, because it's almost like everything else is other people's work, it seems to me, you know. I want to say one other thing that's really motivated me. And actually I learned this in my coaching seminar, which was like, we had to come up with what a mission statement for ourselves. And this was kind of like this inner process and like, there's a lot of the, you know, a lot of like this spiritual stuff that feels a little too crunchy and, you know, you want to avoid that. But this whole mission thing for me, I can't remember exactly what the mission statement was that I came up with, but it's like, what, what was my life really about? And really what it's, what I came up with was that it's about wanting people to see the beauty of the world. And I think that's been a a guiding principle for me in all of my work. So the language and the way that I, express myself needed to be uh, like an act of beauty. Uh, uh, Again, otherwise it wasn't worth it. And, And, you know, what's always so difficult, right, is that these days, I mean, anybody can write anything and there's so much writing on the web and everybody has a blog and, you know, there's just so many words, right? And for me, it takes me years. Like it, it, I wrote this article on um that's on my uh, Promise of the Land website on land. It's um let's see a a response to Aldo Leopold, a biblical land ethic. That article took me like two years to write, you know. And there's just such a difference between scholarly writing and and. Wanting to do something aesthetically that has enduring power versus just a blog, right? I can't even write a blog. I wouldn't. I wouldn't even know where to start. <laughs> but, but that's very complicated. Like because that's where you're judged, right? It's just writing, right? Um. So anyway, I just, I just wanted to put that piece in because that, w- that's been. I guess that's been this abiding piece for me my whole life is about the beauty of nature. And also you'll, I have this piece, this article coming out next, I don't know when it's going to come out now, but there's a new book that'll come out called um, it's, it's the Oxford university press handbook on Bible and ecology. Hopefully it'll be out in the fall, but who knows? And I have a piece on the Song of Songs, the eco-theology of the Song of Songs in there. And in that, I really explore the whole idea of beauty. And beauty is something that's like really looked down upon in so many ways in, in, you know, like around women's studies and like how women have been treated. And then like, you know, people just... Not taking beauty seriously because it's seen in all these um, really negative, superficial ways, and like in terms of marketing and all of that, you know. Um, and then we we've, we've lost the the value of beauty in our culture, and and in Jewish and for me in Jewish culture, it's just not it's not a high value. You know, when you, when you look at a hierarchy of values and you ask people what their values are, right. And you have like 50 values to choose from once I did that. And, and the word land, wasn't one of the values listed to choose from. I'm like, that's my top value, you know, <laughs> and, and beauty, but it's, it's so misunderstood. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I can't tell you the number of rabbis that will, you know, like be really taken aback when I start talking about beauty. So I just I just I just feel like that's this one thing that we I didn't articulate that I I wanted to to give over. So,
0: well, I just want to say, you know, thank you for the work you've done and have been doing because it's really bringing together a lot of different puzzle pieces and in this field and this is why I wanted to emphasize whether or not you've you have books where um, you're approaching certain conceptual themes or you're actually giving us a very very practical tool so I just want to say thank you and thank you for the work you've been doing and thank you for for chatting with me today and for taking the time to uh to just allow me to ask you some questions because, um, how you've come to the point where you have, uh, I find to be really inspiring and mm. I'm looking at it as far as a way of how I can, I can work to approach my, my own work. So thank you so much. And I will, uh, I'll put your information in the description below your website. Your website's amazingly laid out by the way you have thank you so particularly much. because you, uh, the opening chapters to your books are available. So if people want to peruse and kind of look around, there's there's a lot of information. And so I would direct people to your website, alanbernstein.org. And uh, and yeah, thank you so much.
2: Well, thank you. Um, actually, the other website that's just as important is com, which Perfect. is my Haggadah website. There's a ton of stuff there. And there's a lot of articles in there, too.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you, and you know, I, I, it's tough because I feel like I could talk to you for a whole lot of hours. Yeah. Here.
2: <laughs> well, we can do and, this again. I mean, you know, I'm happy to. It's you know, I don't have there aren't again, I don't run into religion ecology people that much. So it's a very different perspective than someone that's starting in a Jewish place. Hmm. So, uh, and I really appreciate that.
0: Well, good. Well, thanks. So then I hope this is, this is the beginning of, of a a longer conversation. Again, there's, there's so many questions, um, that I feel like I have, but, um, anyway, so. um We can,
2: yeah, it's totally (laughs) fine. We can do this. It's very, it's totally fine. It's, it's, it gives me an opportunity to articulate stuff. So it's good for me too.
0: Okay. Um, well then I I will say until next time.
2: (laughs) Mahitra
1: Live on honey that I find in the trees. And build my bed of grass and fallen leaves. So I can feel my heart close to the ground. Touch the earth and pray that we don't drown. 4 a.m to mean the day, chant a song, sing to praise his name, fill my heart with love and taste the word that floods the sea, the sky, the stars, the world. the river Jordan Crossing the river Jordan Crossing the river Crossing that river Crossing the river